Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Wednesday, April 14th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. We've all been talking about Zoom fatigue for the past year, but now a new study has the facts on the phenomenon. Have you tried booking a rental car and noticed they're all sold out or only going for exorbitant prices? Here's why. And a double dose of pterosaur news today. A look at the unique structure of their vertebrae that enabled the giant creatures to take flight. And new evidence that one species of pterosaur may have been the oldest animal yet discovered with an opposable thumb. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. A lot of us have been throwing around the term Zoom fatigue over the past year, sometimes seriously, sometimes more jokingly. I've covered ways to combat Zoom fatigue on this show. Well, now scientists have weighed in with the facts. In a preprint shared this week on SSRN, so it's not yet peer-reviewed, researchers conducted a survey of more than 10,000 people to glean insight into who is most susceptible to Zoom fatigue and what particularly causes it, giving us a more solid foundation upon upon which to suggest solutions. The researchers created a tool called the Zoom Exhaustion and Fatigue Scale, or ZEF, and measured respondents' fatigue on the scale. And some of the findings were fairly obvious. You know, the longer you spend on video calls in a day, and crucially, the less time you have between each call, are leading contributors to Zoom fatigue. But the study also yielded the interesting finding that women reported experiencing Zoom fatigue 13.8% more than men. And part of that has to do with some of the other factors that the study found were at play. Quoting National Geographic, First, the lack of nonverbal cues is stressful because people cannot naturally convey or interpret gestures and body language when just their colleagues' shoulders and hands are visible. People might overcompensate by exaggerating their own gestures, like raising a dramatic thumbs up, while they simultaneously struggle to understand their colleagues' moods. During video calls, people report feeling trapped in one spot so they can stay within view of the webcam, increasing stress levels. Many video conferencing tools default to showing users their own video window, and the researchers found that this constant real-time reflection can cause what's known as mirror anxiety. The condition is a stressful self-consciousness that causes distractions and has been linked to increased anxiety and depression. Finally, the paper describes hypergaze, an intense feeling that other people on the call are staring at you because the video conferencing display shows everyone looking toward their cameras no matter who their focus is actually on. And it's even worse in one-on-one -on -one meetings where your colleague's face appears so large on the screen it's as if they're standing less than two feet away. End quote. Because women survey respondents were found to spend more time in a day in meetings with shorter breaks in between, all of these factors were amplified for them, but they also may have felt some of these more intensely due to other gendered factors at play. For example, previous research has shown that women experience mirror anxiety more often or more intensely than men, which makes sense when you think about the way that society equates worth with appearance more heavily for women than men. Women's bodies tend to be more judged. Accordingly, the survey also found that people of color experience Zoom fatigue more than white people, and people of color are similarly more accustomed to their bodies and actions being policed than white people are writ large, though the racial breakdown was not as stark in the survey as the gender one was. 
And though this study has yet to be peer-reviewed, the ZEF scale they've created could be a useful tool for other studies. For example, National Geographic points out there's been very little research done on how the increase of remote work has affected people with disabilities. The obvious presumption is that it's a better situation for some people with mobility disabilities or various types of chronic illness, but it's definitely been challenging for deaf and hard of hearing people, even as various platforms work quickly to improve their closed captioning features. And even though none of the findings from the study are completely mind-blowing, I do find it really interesting that we're starting to have solid data that we can point to to show how this past year and some of the changes that will continue have affected us as humans, especially if that means we're more equipped to solve for any problems that exist or more tangibly justify why certain accommodations should continue. And until interventions are codified into company policy, the researchers from the study and National Geographic offered a few solutions to combat Zoom fatigue. If you've experienced that feeling of being trapped in one place so you can stay in the webcam's view, try a standing desk so that you have a little bit more mobility while you're on a call. And I'd personally add that if you are able to switch to any meetings without being on video and can go for a walk during those meetings, that is also a great solution that's been growing in popularity. You can also try blue or orange screen filters and eye exercises like that 20-20-21 I mentioned recently to reduce eye strain. And suggestions for company-wide fixes include things like having one day a week in which no video calls are allowed to be scheduled, requiring at least 10 minutes between any scheduled meetings, and always asking whether a video call is actually necessary or if a phone call, email, or Slack conversation would do instead. What did I say yesterday about booking every aspect of travel you may be planning sooner rather than later? I mentioned how Uber and Lyft are short on drivers right now and how Airbnb and Verbo are completely sold out in locations. I also threw in rental cars as an aside, but it turns out the shortage of rental cars is an even bigger problem than I realized yesterday. As people rush to book travel or opt to rent a car for the day instead of risk virus transmission with a series of rideshares like Uber, the demand is higher than it's been for a while, but that's not the only problem. It's also a matter of supply. See, in order to stem the flow of revenue loss last year, rental car companies sold huge amounts of their fleets. We're talking hundreds of thousands of cars. And I honestly can't remember if I ever mentioned this on the show. It's tough to remember everything you talk about when you host a daily podcast. But I know last summer I was reading a lot of advice about buying used cars from rental car companies because they were selling them at super low rates. And rental cars tend to be in pretty great condition as well since they're serviced after every trip. And that move saved a lot of the companies. Industry analyst Neil Abrams points out that usually if the rental car market is down, so is the used car market. But last summer was a historic high for used car sales, so it worked out for them. But now, demand is back and the rental car companies can't buy up new cars fast enough. Even less popular destinations are sold out or showing shockingly high prices. Some customers who have reserved cars report showing up and having no car available to them, and then having to wait, sometimes hours, for another one to be returned and cleaned. The Wall Street Journal says the three major U.S. rental car companies, Hertz, Avis, and Enterprise, expect the shortages to continue, and note that it's only exacerbated by the larger auto manufacturing slowdown. According to the Wall Street Journal, Hertz is down 42% in its car inventory, having disposed of over 200,000 last year, and Avis similarly disposed of over 250,000 cars last year. 
As they rush to balance supply with demand, Abrams warns that people should get used to higher fares, saying we've been spoiled for quite a while. It's probably going to take some time for the prices and availability to bounce back. Yes, even for elite member holders. The days of $40 a day car rentals may be over for quite a while. It's a big day for pterosaur news, with two new studies being published with findings about the prehistoric flying reptiles. One study that provides further insight into the anatomy and physics of how one of the largest groups of pterosaurs were able to stay afloat in the skies, and another introducing a new species of pterosaur, nicknamed the monkey dactyl, because it appears to have had an opposable thumb, which would make it the oldest known animal yet to exhibit the trait. But first, the big old giraffe-sized Asdarkid pterosaurs. These dudes had wingspans of 33 feet and were the largest flying animals ever. How did such massive reptiles manage to fly and to carry heavy prey without breaking their long, thin necks? These questions have persisted in part because, like birds, pterosaurs had pretty lightweight skeletons to enable their flying, and that means their bones have rarely generated fossils we can still find and study today. Carrie Williams, a PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, recently conducted a CT scan of fossils from the Chem-Chem site in Morocco, one of the few places as darkid fossils can be found. The specimen in question most likely had a wingspan between 20 and 26 feet and a neck about 5 feet long. Williams' findings, published today in the journal iScience, came as something of a surprise to her and her colleagues. Quoting the New York Times, the animal's neck was revealed to be scaffolded by a unique and complex network of helical struts connecting a central neural tube to the vertebral wall like the spokes of a bicycle. It was a structure that has no parallel elsewhere in the animal kingdom. A biomechanical analysis of the intricate structure of the neck revealed that these spoke-like filaments bolstered the vertebrae against the pressures of catching and carrying heavy prey. According to the team's calculations, the addition of only 50 struts increased by 90% the weight that they could bear without buckling, enabling this particular specimen to carry loads of up to 24 pounds, which Miss Williams called really impressive. They were using less energy to optimize their strength in their neck to be able to lift the prey, she said. The unusual adaptation may have functions beyond hunting and feeding, such as neck bashing, an intermale rivalry behavior seen in giraffes, or as a way to deal with the shearing forces associated with large skulls being buffeted by strong winds during flight or while on the ground, according to the study. End quote. And if you want to get a visual on the spoke-like structure of the vertebrae, there is a 3D rendering of the CT scan at the New York Times link in the show notes. But now that monkey dactyl with the opposable thumb. This pterosaur species is substantially smaller than the Asdarkid group, with a wingspan of only 3 feet, and dwelled some 160 million years ago in present-day Liaoning, China. It's part of the Darwinitarian genus of pterosaurs, which were so named because their existence indicates the evolutionary shift from their smaller, non-flying descendants to the larger flying pterosaurs we recognize today. 
Researchers who published their findings today in the journal Current Biology say this is the only Darwinitarian pterosaur of the three known ones in the area to exhibit this possible opposable thumb trait, leading them to believe the different pterosaurs in the area evolved to take on different roles in their ecosystem. And specifically, the presence of an opposable thumb would indicate that it could have been an arboreal species, hence the nickname Monkey Dactyl. Quoting Gizmodo, the opposite digit in the pterosaurian species is technically a pollux, which is the innermost digit of a forelimb. Not all animals have thumbs, so pollux is a catch-all term. Other modern species to have opposable pollices include tree frogs, which are amphibians, and chameleons, the only extant reptiles to have the feature. The opposite digit is crucial for grip among arboreal species, as it allows them to better cling to branches and climb trees. To determine whether the Jurassic pterosaur's thumbs were opposable, only one claw was preserved, so the team is going off that forelimb, the team x-ray imaged the fossil, getting a better sense of how the digit corresponded to the other claws at the animal's disposal. The fingers of the monkey dactyl are tiny and partly embedded in the slab, said co-author Fionn Waisam-Ma, a paleontologist at the University of Birmingham, in the same release. By x-ray scanning, Ma said, the team could see through the rocks, create digital models, and tell how the opposed thumb articulates with the other finger bones. To test whether Darwinitarans writ large were truly arboreal, the study authors note that they were thought to be for some time, though evidence was tenuous, the researchers compared 25 pterosaur species with over 150 other species known for tree climbing, and they determined that the specimen was indeed a tree climber, though the other pterosaurs from the area lacked the capacity, end quote. Other paleontologists say this single claw fossil is not enough to be a smoking gun for arboreality, so more examples will definitely need to be found and analyzed before conclusions are solidified, but for now, we can entertain ourselves with the vision of tiny pterosaurs swinging from tree to tree in the forests of China. And let's also agree not to tell that Neuralink dude about these dinosaurs with opposable thumbs. That's the last thing we need him to add to his modern Jurassic Park plans. Alright, so you know the Boston Dynamics robot dog that looks uncannily like the murderous one from that episode of Black Mirror? It's been a bit of a horror show to many of us since its inception, even if some internet creators do try to make it funny by re-engineering it to pee beer, for example. One of the worst applications I've recently seen had to be the footage earlier this week of the NYPD having gotten their hands on one of them and trained it as a police dog. I honestly still haven't fully processed that that is a real thing that's happening. Sensing people's fear, Mashable has done a great public service and written a step-by-step -step guide on how to shut down the robot dog in case you ever need to. The guide references Boston Dynamics' manual for the robot and other published resources to explain how to stop it and all of the various dangers in attempting to do so. The bottom line really is that no one who isn't fully trained on the robot's operation should be anywhere near them. But should you like to be fully informed, just in case, you can bookmark the link in the show notes. And on that happy note, that is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.